Second Corinthians one. You guys can just listen along or turn there if you want. Each sip your coffee. Second Corinthians one verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and He will deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Father, as we pull up anchor and set sail for another day, we join Paul. Regardless of our feelings, of our circumstances, we join Paul in saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there's no such thing as a man without affliction in this world. And it would be suicide to not look to Jesus Christ in faith and not look to the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies for comfort. There is no greater comfort. There is no lasting comfort. And so this morning, Father, we, we thank you for this food. We thank you that we're not in hell. We thank you that we'll never be in hell for those of us who have put faith in Jesus Christ. And may all of us do so. Strengthen these dear men. Father, I pray we would be changed for the better because of our time together. And for those brothers, who many of whom couldn't make it this morning, we pray you would have mercy and be with them and strengthen them. And that we would all be, we would be more heavenly and more biblical and joyful in our thinking because of our study this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, gentlemen. <clears throat> Thanks for breakfast, Aaron. We um, are looking at a study this year in biblical masculinity. Uh, God's call for every man. Uh, there are two genders. That's the most controversial thing that's been said in this study since October. And God has glorified himself and not only making them, giving them an identity, but giving them tasks for his glory. And so we've been looking at those having started in Genesis 1 and 2, proceeded to Genesis 3, uh, looking at, morning Travis, good to see you. Um, looking at uh, really the, the foundation of what the man is what the man is to do in light of who he is and that's the fear of god psalm 128 
That's sort of been our, our launch point. Psalm 128. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. And Psalm 128 gives us that great promise that every area of life, it won't be easy. It won't be untouched by the curse. But God will be with us for blessing. Work, worship, family if he has one, purity. And so we've looked at many different topics under biblical. And we're finishing up looking at biblical masculinity, biblical masculinity excuse me, and fathering. Uh, you might not be a father today, but the vast majority, at least statistically, tells us of men will be fathers. And even if you're never one biologically, you're called to be one spiritually. And so these, these items from Scripture help us. Uh, we looked at many things. Uh, compassion is the dad trait, uh, a forgiving dad, a dad who disciplines his children. We saw that a dad needs to do all that he does in the fruit of the Spirit. The vehicle of dadding is the fruit of the Spirit, which means a dad needs to get born again. That's the chief task of a dad, get born again. And then everything we're doing here, all the, all the stuff we're doing in fathering needs to happen in the fruit of the Spirit. And you can get the notes or the tape from last week. And uh, we're looking at just two quick things, and I want to move on to today's lesson. Uh, dads, just a, a couple of items. I don't think they're in your notes. Dads, in addition to compassion, assuring their children, no matter what you do, I will be here with you, for you. I will be here to forgive you and receive you back, et cetera, et cetera. Dads, furthermore, foster a good work ethic in their kids. Uh, dads foster a godly, even if junior is unregenerate, which you cannot unsure, dads foster a godly work ethic. And we saw that there are three realms that we want to uh, shepherd our dear children in. Um, number one is, is the home. Uh, number two is work, or if they're in school, there could be crossover there. And number three is church, that we want to foster a godly work ethic in those three realms. And the Proverbs talk extensively about that, extensively. Um, Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. And we saw that a, a, a lazy child, uh, not a child who is inherently resistant to work, that's part of the sin nature, but where that gets propagated and allowed, that actually is a mark of shame on the parents, a child who expects to have the world handed to him and expects to get a first place ribbon or for lifting a finger and for doing nothing commendable, that's an actually a mark of shame on the parent because the Proverbs say that that's the parent's fault in part. Okay? That it's the parent's privilege and duty to shape something, as we looked several weeks ago of masculinity and work, something of a work ethic in junior. 
The junior is learning that this world is cursed. There's thorns and thistles, and you got to push back. You got to push back against it. And work is commendable. See, see that lesson. That's sort of a preface for this. And as I chat with my kids about this imperfectly, there are at least four things that I want to tell them. We left off here last week. Um, number one, at least four things I want to tell Junior. Again, this is we give them the gospel. We understand that a godly work ethic cannot earn righteousness. Um, that we shouldn't need uh, external coercion. We shouldn't need external coercion to work hard. And we, we, we saw that there's two things that we want to teach our kids to move them, and that's their conscience and the fear of Yahweh. That we don't, we don't want the scourge of society uh, or jail or mom and dad always to have to be the guardrails and the fuel to overcome the inertia to do what's right in these three realms. We want their conscience and the fear of Yahweh. No, you can't make them regenerate. Yes, we need to, we need to learn how to engage the conscience of our monstrously iniquitous children like us to teach them to overcome that iniquity and live righteously. The proverb of the ant in Proverbs 6 isn't first about working hard. It's not what it's about. It's about not having to be constantly whipped or coerced externally to live righteously and work hard. The point of the proverb is, look at the ant. He doesn't have a guy that constantly has to tell him, you know, put in your 40 hours, put in your 40 hours, pick up after yourself, do what's right. No, you don't get to break stuff and freak out when, when things don't go your way. No, you can't just claim self-pity and a victim mentality all the time. It's not how life works. Sorry. You still need to live righteously. That your own heart would move in you to do that like the ant. Having no chief, no ruler, he still does what he needs to do. That's the point. Second, I want to tell my kids, as I want to tell myself, um, work is hard and you just have to face it. Work is hard and you have to face it. That's a lot of what Proverbs is saying. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent surely lead to advantage. There's blessing in hard work. You get stuff. You can, have, you can have a hobby. You can have a buck or two for tomorrow. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. That's an interesting one. He craves and gets nothing. And what that craving will turn into, because it's an unrighteous craving, is covetousness. You owe me something. Uh, maybe thievery. Greed, even though you don't have anything, greed doesn't mean you have a lot and you don't give. It means you're radically unthankful and have a high view of yourself. You break stuff, you turn into one of these smashing grabbers. Uh, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a lion's in the open square. 
So he's thinking there's hard stuff, but he doesn't want to face it. There's not a line in the road, but even if there was, he needs to uh, get his get his 308 and just go out into the road. And if a line comes upon him, shoot it and do its hard and work. Or his 454 or whatever it is. And this is a hard one, but we need, you know, 80% of life, 85 maybe, maybe more, is learning to do what you don't want to do and do it in thankfulness to God. If you can do that in this cursed Genesis 3 world, you'll do well by God's grace. That's what I want to tell my kids, and I tell my own heart. One of the mottos in the Davis household is work hard, play hard, in that order, and not one without the other, right? You don't play hard unless you work hard. And if you work hard, you need to play hard because we're not cordless drills and because there's verses about it in Ecclesiastes. Number three, the thing I want to tell my kids, that if you work hard, sort of what I just said, um, God will usually bless you. No, that doesn't mean life is effortless, easy, without battles, without the curse. He'll usually bless you with what you want and a couple of extra fun things, maybe. If you can do this, do this, this will often result. Right? Pretty simple. Fourth, I want to teach my kids that of everything they get, okay, whether it's a wage or a gift from somebody, that we give back to God because it's his anyways. They get, they get, you know, they get a $10 bill from, you know, grandpa for, for their birthday. They need to give some of it back to God. They make 10 bucks for, you know, helping me with the camper business. They need to give, they need to give a buck to God. Everything that comes in, allowance, gift, everything, if, if, whatever I'm not thinking of, because it's all God's. They get a $20 bill for Christmas. They're going to give some of it back to God. Well, dad, shouldn't I just get, isn't it just supposed to give what I earn? Nope. You give everything. It's all God's. You give of everything. Proverbs 3, 9, honor, the, honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So I don't want my kids to have to be coerced. I want to set them up. I'm all, I always want to set them up for when they fly the coop. We're always looking for that day, right? 80, 90% of life is just doing hard stuff that you don't want to do. Do it anyways. And God will usually bless you with some stuff. And everything is God, so make sure you give them a chunk. That's a, such a helpful command from uh, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, if you, look, I want to tell you that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this is actually a grace of God. This is merciful of God to say, I know that the human heart is so inclined to self-worship. I'm going to give you a specific way that you can just ensure at least some of your wicked heart is being given to God. That's helpful. There's like this thing you can do where no, your heart, no matter what else is happening in your life, how you're tempted, 
You can be always having part of your heart in God and giving it to God, and that's the most important thing. Throwing God back some of what he gave you. That, that's a grace. We feel in that. We understand that. No matter what, I can ensure part of my heart is going to God. And that's the greatest human need, is that God would have my heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Additionally, I want to tell my kids about the dangers and the blessings of sexuality. I want to tell my kids about the dangers and the blessings, this isn't in your notes, of sexuality. The dangers and the blessing of sexuality. Uh, neglecting this area is, or waiting too late for this area, it's like neglecting to remove snow from your driveway on, on a winter like this winter, like, like trying to wait till April 30th to plow your driveway. Uh, the freeze thaw arrives and it's, it's too late. It's, you're not going anywhere. Um, the Proverbs tell it straight up, don't they? I like the Proverbs. It just, just cuts right through it all. It says, there's destruction. And number two, it says there's blessing. There's nothing in between that the Proverbs tell us. Destruction. Probably one of the more helpful situations is Proverbs 7. It's a story. It's not the story of a raging, lustful, perverted man. It's the story of an unintentional man, of a man who's, he's mellow. He's a no worries kind of guy. He's just approaching life mellow with no intention. That's, that's what it is. And so he gets nailed by the intentionality of Satan. Just like any area of life, I'm going to tell my kids, you choose a different path than God's, no matter what. Every single time you do, you're going to reap destruction. No matter how good it feels in the moment. You can sniff, a, you can sniff and huff a, a, a huge bucket of toluene. It'll feel great for a few seconds, but you'll reap destruction afterwards. So it is with departing from God's ways and sexuality every single time. Yes, there's forgiveness. Oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But you don't just push control, alt, delete, and erase everything that happens. With this sin and this departure, there is a residual muck that hangs on to you often for life. So you have to choose. Proverbs 7:24, therefore, my sons, listen to me and my daughters. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. It's always the heart. Which again, which is why I want my kids to be doing this. So heart's been given to God, being given in part to God. Don't stray into her past. For many, verse 26, many are the victims she has cast down. Not few. Not few. I'll illustrate this in a second on our next lesson. And numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. You choose this path in sexuality, you're going to, it's like going into the control room and you're yanking wires. Yeah, you can kind of put those wires back in, but th th there'll be a little misfire the rest of your life. Promise. So, 
addressing this issue is not letting Junior have his way. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod of reproof gives wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame. So this, this goes back not just to talking about sexuality, but not letting teaching Junior right here to overcome his impulse to just do what he feels like. The impulse is not the permission. Our society has lost that, haven't we? Impulse is not permission. Impulse is often indicator of prohibition. Well, I have a piece about it, then you probably shouldn't do it. Oh, I have a piece about, God gave me a piece about it. Now you need to have a war about it. My Bible says that we're at war with ourselves. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, doesn't it? The fleshly lusts which wage war inside of you. So teach junior, I want to teach my kids not to just do what they feel like. Because there'll be a time when feel like becomes powerful in that area, right? You must learn to go against your heart. I want to teach junior, whatever you do, don't, don't follow your heart. Don't listen to the stupid Disney songs. Uh, don't listen to all the goofy, catastrophically shallow and anti-intellectual music these days. Instead, listen to Proverbs 28, 26, which says what? Go ahead, let's, all, let's turn there. Proverbs 28, 26. We need to have this one memorized. Big time. Probably one of the most important verses in the entire book of Proverbs. Uh, Brother uh, Seth, what, would, you, would you read that for us, please, loud and clear? He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who walks wisely will be delivered. He'll be delivered. Delivered from what? Yes. All of it. Especially this area. He trusts in his own heart as a fool. Well, it just felt right. Well, I, I, needed, a, I needed a release, a relief. You don't understand what you just did. You weakened your muscles of faith and strengthened your muscles of sin. And the next time it won't be easier. Compromising in one area doesn't lead to strength in that area next time, nor any other area. Right? Faith is a muscle. Self-denial is a muscle. We understand that. It gets exercised, and then it gets stronger. It gets denied, it atrophies, always. So I want to teach my kids that this lesson, sexual sin, starts with you don't just do what you feel like. That's the worst thing. This has been lost largely in contemporary Christianity. Uh, just think about how you're forgiven, let go, let God, have a peace about it. That's legalistic. What I'm telling you right now, eight, probably eight out of 10 evangelicals will say, that's legalistic. And then my next question for them is, what's your thought life like? That's legalistic. Which is a catastrophically just shallow and aberrant understanding of legalism. No, we're not saying 
that fighting your sin merits righteousness before a blazingly holy God in heaven. Not at all. That's faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. But you need to finish the faith or you're not in the faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, right? Beware, brethren, lest any of you develop this evil, an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we are partakers of Christ if, if, condition. Paul's more of a Calvinist than you are. If we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. Then we need to finish the faith. You don't finish, you're not in the faith. May God help us. Blessing. Blessing comes from doing this. Keeping things in the right category. All right, we don't need to speak much about that. Marriage only. And marriage, actual marriage, a man and a woman. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is to be held in high honor, in high, high honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. And again, there's great forgiveness and redemption in Christ, cleansing in Christ, renewal in Christ, and all of this. Hallelujah. Okay? Um, especially with daughters, uh, I, I want to warn my daughters, people, especially males, can be really good at faking and manufacturing, manufacturing virtue in order to get sexuality. They are exceptionally, effortlessly skilled. And mac, manu, I mean, I want to I tell, if I had sons, I'd tell them that too. Which is why, again, scripture, not feelings, or someone being nice, is how we make decisions about sexuality. These are areas, forsaking God's design and sexuality, these are areas which you will not forget and you cannot reverse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's a unique kind of sin. It's like, it's like, taking a thousand pounds of styrofoam and, and throwing it all in your backyard and thinking it's going to go away quickly. Styrofoam has a half-life of 500 years. It'll get blown around and broken up, but it's there. It's hard to get rid of. These are areas in which you're to give yourself to someone only once they've demonstrated two things. They have given themselves to God. That other person especially if you're not in the picture, I want to tell my kids, that other person you're considering, regardless if you're in the picture, especially girls, they've given themselves to God. And they are capable and proven of giving themselves, giving themselves to you sacrificially. Committed. Obviously, marriage. Only then do you enter marriage in which sexuality can take place. Okay? Because again, people are good at faking virtue. 
to give what they want. And all this, I want the gospel to bear on this. Again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Okay, in common sense, obvious. Um, and segueing into today's lesson, you should all hopefully have notes. Another thing I want to warn my kids of is dabbling with secret sin. Dabbling with secret sin. In transitioning, I think it's helpful to say to our kids, at least I want to say to my kids now and then, you know, you know, honey, it's, it's going to be easier and easier to get away with stuff with dad. Uh, you can do th- a lot of things and dad's not going to know about it. That's, that's just going to get easier and easier. You can sneak things. You can do things on your computer with your friends and such. When you get older, it'll be more and more. However, I want to tell my kids, you will never, ever, ever be able to get away with it before God. And that's all that matters because dad's not holy, but God is. You don't have to stand before dad in the judgment, but you do have to stand before God. Dad forgets things. God doesn't. Our entire lives, I want to tell my children, our entire life, you're living in the palm of God's hand. Even if you turn out to be a rank Satan worshiper, a disciple of Anton LaVey's, you're living in God's hand when he sees. You'll reap what you sow. So, with that, lesson 11. I think this is, it behooves us as men to talk about masculinity and secret sin. This isn't only for our kids. It struck me uh, many years ago as I was sitting in seminary one day and we had chapel twice a week. Chapel was great. Excellent preaching, not only on Sunday, but Tuesday and Thursday, 9 a.m. It was awesome. Who, would, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want church every day? And the chapel was very somber. One of our professors got up and said, so-and-so professor can no longer be a professor here. He has disqualified himself because of secret sin. And I mean, the air, you could have cut it with a machete. Then, fast forward to just a couple years ago, as uh, I have been doing ongoing education at, at the seminary, I was preparing to head to LA. This is a few summers ago. Particular individual, if I said his name, probably all of you would know who he was writer, books. He was going to be one of our professors for the week. And I got an email. I was probably packing my suitcase that said, so-and-so cannot be our professor next week. He's disqualified himself sexually. It had just gone public. He'd been covering it up for a few years. It was just heart-wrenching. Just tragic. Shocking. Shocking. 
I mean, the books we'd read from the sky, sermons we've listened to. And during that time, he had been in secret compromise. And then, you know, fast forward before that, out of seminary, I mean, it's like every year I'm hearing of another so-and-so writer who everyone was excited about, big-time conference speaker, YouTube followers, books. This guy's awesome. Falls. Some secret sin gets revealed. And so it's not surprising anymore. The grace of God covers it, thankfully. You don't lose your salvation if you were saved in the first place. But again, like styrofoam in the backyard, you don't get rid of it. It just sits there and blows around. And you can never be in ministry again. Some of these guys are back in ministry. They shouldn't be. It, that, that's, that's over. That's irreparable. You need to go find a different job, a different career. You might have, you might have been called to the ministry. You've just been called out of the ministry now by your own doing. And may God have mercy on us. So I, I just want to look, on, look at a few things on secret sin, secret compromises. Because if you're not Jesus, and if you're not in heaven, you and I, have the potential of secret compromise, secret sin. Not just sexual sin, any kind of disqualifying sin. So just a few thoughts. Number one, we won't be able to get through it all today. Number one, in your notes, none of us are above a fall. None of us, number one, are above a fall. The list of guys who have allowed themselves to succumb to secret sin is so long, it's not short. Again, guys, big book deals with, with big Christian publishers, speakers. Everyone wanted to invite this guy to a conference and go see him. I, I have a list here of initials. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I was just thinking yesterday, and it just was heart-wrenching to look at this list. It just seems like the longer you live, more and more guys fall who write on Christian living and speak on godliness like I'm doing right now. More than we would ever want to see. And so, since we're mere men, we need to, number one, remember, none of us are above this. We may not be currently battling a sin from which another fell. However, external circumstances can change quickly in your life. Satan can slither in powerfully and, and bring an, a weakness combined with a temptation before you. And if caught off guard, compromise becomes easy, not, not difficult. Unless you're in heaven. If you're in heaven right now, it's not going to happen. You're immune. We're no better than the fallen. And we just have to think about, think long-term in life. It's, it's healthy for a man to be a little bit afraid of himself. Uh, in ancient times, the, the skilled watchman, he had a, people were like, man, why are you, just, why are you so like on guard? He, he might be thought of as a legalist, an overkill, overboard, the skilled watchman. 
but he had a healthy suspicion of the enemy. And because he did, every time the enemy came in, I mean, he's blown the horn. The, the cavalry was up and ready to go get him. He never was asleep on the job because he was a little bit, like, ready. Similarly, the healthy Christian has a suspicion of himself. So much could be said about that and the weakness, the spiritual weakness of our current generation. He understands, the man of God understands, his pride is his greatest enemy. Because pride is, that, that, that's the fertile ground for all kinds of secret compromise. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. What does it mean to take heed? That's legalism. I'm so tired of hearing that. I want to be like Elijah and call down fire on that, that saying. It's just so unhelpful. You don't know the first thing then about soteriology and sanctification if you think that's legalism. You don't know the first thing about it. You're not going to go to heaven and have God be like, you know, I wish you wouldn't have taken your sin so seriously. I wish you wouldn't have taken heed to yourself. You shouldn't have done that. You're being legalistic. No, that's not going to happen. The apostle of grace said, I fight myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. What does it mean to take heed? Yep. What else? Preparation. You, you, you do something, and you don't do something. Some of the godliest men I know are men who are suspicious of themselves. The man who thinks this can't happen to him is the one who's the most in danger. Number two. Every man, number two, must choose... The suffering of refusing to compromise on Scripture or the suffering of regret from having compromised. There are two types of suffering every man has to choose. One of my, one of my mentors used to tell us this in seminary. Man, there's two, two pains in life. And you choose which one. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. So this side of heaven, you know, we're always faced with temptation. It's temptationville. That's earth. It's temptationville. That's why I like the Pilgrim's Progress, especially when he goes through Vanity Fair. You know, and he meets in other places, too. He meets Wonton. It's so helpful how realistic Bunyan is and how knowledgeable he is. I mean, the Puritans were... We, we, we should be embarrassed of ourselves, of how light we are. Lightweights, spiritual lightweights compared to them. May God help us, our current generation. Our Lord taught us to pray against temptation in Matthew chapter 6, didn't he? Be on guard against Satan's temptations, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. 
your adversary, the devil. And he's speaking to believers here. But notice Peter doesn't say that that's legalistic. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm. Not casual, firm. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is ubiquitous. So we need to be on guard. And being on guard against Satan means being on guard against yourself because Satan looks and tests the weak parts of the fences. You're the fence, he's the tester. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 again. Let him who thinks he stands take heed. Facing temptation is painful sometimes. The resistance against giving in. Paul Washer has a helpful illustration. It's like a guy doing a clean and jerk and standing underneath it, an enormous amount of weight and not buckling. That's hard. You're standing under it, standing under it. The battle waging inside us between the spirit and the flesh. Sometimes temptation is, if you're really in the fight, you know what I'm talking about. It is painful sometimes. And things we need to do to resist. There's a pain and temptation, but there's a greater pain when you give into it. And the reason it's seductive is because it doesn't promise pain, it promises pleasure, and the pain doesn't come right away. Better to suffer. The, the implication from Scripture is this. Better to suffer from the scourging of temptation now than to suffer from giving in to temptation later. It's a noble type of suffering. A heroic type, by God's grace. Far better for a man to suffer from Satan's attacks against him for not compromising on the Word of God than to suffer Satan's attacks for having compromised on the Word of God. People will mock you. People will say, well, you know, you're a, you're a prude or you're a legalistic or why can't you come on, you know, Christian liberties and we're free in Christ and all this garbage. That, that's a form of suffering and scourging that a man will endure. But when he, when he gets to heaven, he won't be sad that he did that. Because by God's grace, he'll hear, well done, good and faithful slave. By God's grace alone. Is this God's grace or man's effort? Yes. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So either way, either way a man's going to have pain. Pain in his life. It's just a matter of which kind of pain he wants to choose. The pain of not compromising on the word of God. Or the pain of regret from having done so. And it can be enormous. No man will be able to escape both types of pain, this side of heaven. And, and I ask us this morning, as I ask you, as I ask myself, which one do you, are you choosing day to day, men? Compromising on the word of God or refusing to do so? Which one are you choosing? Number three. And you men could add to this, just some thoughts here. Number three, hidden sins are only hidden for a time. Hidden sins 
are only temporarily hidden. Uh, perhaps one of the most deceptive thoughts that a man ever has is, I, I, can, I can keep this under wraps. I, I can control this. I, I can keep this lion in his cage, in my yard. Numbers chapter 32 is helpful. But if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. What a sobering verse that is. So helpful too. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. First Timothy 5, 24. This is, this is helpful. Paul's instruction, Timothy is all about like, how, what, what should a church be like? What, what is a New Testament church? If it, if it gets the high and the exalted privilege of defining itself as a New Testament church, what needs to be in it? First Timothy and second. He says this, verse, verse 24, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. What's he saying there? What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. In Greco-Roman culture, in American culture, it's like the sins of some, I mean, they're out there. It's, it's, you see them. They're ever before you. Okay? Likewise also, for others, I should say, excuse me, for others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What's he saying in that last part? In both verses. Yeah. It comes out later. It's like, there's flowers in that garden. There's flowers in that garden. There's flowers in that garden. Boom, there's weeds. Oh, the plastic flowers. They were plastic the whole time, and I didn't recognize it. And may God have mercy on us. This could happen to me easily. With every act of disobedience, secret disobedience and compromise, we are planting seeds in a garden with, which with time will grow into a rotten plant that everyone will see. We cannot scatter thorn seeds in secret and think that straw, a nice booming strawberry patch will bloom in public. Reaping and sowing one-to-one. Douglas Wilson is helpful here. God has promised to publicize things we would rather keep secret. Oof, that, that makes me shudder, that quote. John MacArthur would often say to us in seminary, he would say, men, As often he would have to address us as a, some compromise came out or came out in the news or something. Some pastor. God, he said, he would say, God will cover what we uncover, but he'll uncover what you cover. Hidden sins are only hidden for a time. 
rather fight it, even a thought. Expose it to the Lord. Get it, get it at the cross. Dump it at the cross continually. Number four, secret sins usually lead to unintended and unexpected fallout, a fallout cost. When you're hiding sin, hiding compromise, it usually leads to some unintended and unexpected fallout. A secret sin committed that was intended, I'm just going to, a little bit here, often leads to additional fallout costs that were not intended. In other words, the plan to commit hidden sins often results in out-in-the-opened, unplanned consequences. Secret sin does things like offer itself, presents itself deceptfully, deceitfully as an attractive, relevant, harmless little kitten. But what it doesn't tell you, as soon as you receive it, it quickly morphs into an untamed infestation rabies-infested tiger. Remember Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. Remember Achan. That's a chapter I need to read just often. I mean, it's it's a sobering, helpful, transforming study in how little compromise becomes big catastrophe. Remember Achan's sin? They set out, what is it, to, to Jericho? AI, thank you. Glad we got a Bible scholar in here. And Yahweh says, don't, don't take anything. This is all going to be destroyed and devoted to destruction because God is too holy. Destroy it all. And so Achan, I mean, he's a dad. He, he, he's a... He was a father, had a posterity. He probably wasn't thinking, well, I'm going I'm to sin and take this stuff and then have what happened. Verse, verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I've sinned against Yahweh. Remember, because they, they go up to battle and 36 of the Israelites, it seems like nothing, but they're killed. And in light of what Yahweh promised, like, why, why did we get beat by them? And Yahweh says, because you guys sinned against me. And there's some secret compromise in the camp. He says, but he, and he, and he even confesses not till he gets found out, though. You don't want to do that. We want, we want to confess it before it materializes. This is what I did, verse 21, when I notice, notice this, is, this parallels, I think, uncoincidentally, Eve's fall as well in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Look how it parallels Eve's fall and 1 John 2.15, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Verse 21, when I saw, I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar. This expensive thing. And 200 shekels of silver. And a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then, you know, he said, take them. I saw and I what? I coveted. This will help the kids. I'll have an inheritance for the, for, for, for the children. I'll be able to bless my wife with that chariot she's been wanting. I'll be able to save up for the kids' college. 
a retirement fund. The, the, Yahweh will understand. And I coveted and took, and behold, they're concealed. Saw, and he wasn't on guard. He wasn't reading 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Saw, and wasn't on guard. Coveted, took, concealed. There, there was a, oh man. There were a few points there where he could have just, when he, could, when he took them, he could have just no, thrown, thrown them back and just lit it on fire and blew it up. May God help us. And they're concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. A few things to notice. The progression, we talked about that. His heart was already compromised before he entered. Are you sure it's not Jericho? I'm probably wrong. AI Jericho before after the Lord overthrew the city. He was already in a state of spiritual compromise. That, that was where he didn't go wrong when he saw it. He went wrong that his heart was already in a state where he wasn't in his daily life, by the grace of God, practicing self-denial and restraint and crucifying the temptations for secret compromise. He wasn't in a state of compromise, of, of crucifying the temptation to compromise in his conscience. And that's where the battle, when the, when the opportunity presented itself, it was already over. Yes, that, yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, stole from Jericho. Walls fell down, they went in. Right. So after being faced with temptation, Achan did intend to take the mantle, the silver, and gold. However, he did not intend the consequences of his secret sin. 36 Israelite soldiers killed in battle, Joshua chapter 7, verse 5. 36 lives he was responsible for. And, and brothers, Joshua 7, 24 to 25, his entire family was what? What happened to his family? executed, and the little ones. God's holy. Well, he's not like that in the New Testament. God, God went to some counseling between the Old and the New Testament, and, and, and he matured. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Ananias and Sapphira. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and on. God killed, Paul says, God killed some of you Corinthians because you were partaking communion in an unworthy manner. He killed them. A secret sin committed, which Achan did intend, led to additional fallout costs, which he did not intend. He did not intend for his entire family and his children to be executed. He probably intended to help them. He did not intend for them to be killed and buried in the Valley of Achor. David, we need to end here. David planned to commit the secret sin of adultery with well before when he was walking around on the roof, he didn't plan it, but his heart was already his heart was already in a compromised state. Right? There's that ominous sentence in first second Samuel chapter eleven. 
Behold, in the spring when kings usually go out to war, David got up from a nap and was just walking around on the floor, on the roof, and behold, he saw. Which is why Jesus says, he, he clarifies all this in Matthew chapter 5 and says, even if your eye sees, take a rusty spoon and gouge your eye out. And the word he uses a throw is like, chuck it. So David committed the secret sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He did not, however, plan to have to murder Uriah and for the sword to never leave his family. And we thank God that there's, we have a crucified Savior who washes us of sin and the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to strengthen us. Father in heaven, thank you for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the cleansing of sin. We, Father, we just throw ourselves before you this morning knowing that we're not above anything. And we want to we be faithful to you, Lord, because we want to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. So I, play, I pray that all of us, like Paul said, would buffet our body. Father, we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I pray for all of us as men that none of us would ever fall and that one day we would hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Give, give my dear brothers here physically, uh, those online listening in, Father, give us all extra, extra grace until we gather for corporate worship on Sunday. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.